I've been a big fan of Mark's for a long time through his books, and I told him when we met yesterday that, that I've been a big fan, but because I wanted to give him as much time possible, I was going to do a brief introduction. So here it is. Mark Middleberg is a best-selling author, international speaker, and leading strategist when it comes to evangelism. His books include Confident Faith, The Reason Why Faith Makes Sense, and Questions. This is my favorite, Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. Mark lives near the Denver, Colorado area with his wife of 36 years, Heidi, her her name. They have two children, Emma Jean and Matthew, and both of them serve in ministry. Let's give a really warm Mount Pleasant welcome to Mark Middleberg this morning. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here with you today, and especially I am excited that you are launching this series called Room for Doubt. And I say that because often, unfortunately, churches are not places where doubt seems to be welcomed. It's like, let's all, you know, have faith and stay positive. And if you have a question, you know, a lot of times people feel like they have to push it down and kind of figure it out on their own. And that's not the way it should be. And I love that this church is saying, we're gonna give five weeks to make room for doubt, to say, uh, you know, this is a place where you, you know, the best place really to bring questions, doubts, you know, things that you're wondering about the faith, whether you've been a longtime Christian or whether you're someone just kind of investigating the Christian faith, this series is for you, and that's really what it's all about. So uh, I'm honored to be here as part of it, and I just want to tell you right up front, I've dealt with some of these issues in my own life. Uh, My background is I was raised uh, in a Christian family. Uh, My parents actually met at Wheaton College, if you know anything about Wheaton College. It was like I was predestined to be a Christian, you know, if my parents met at Wheaton. Um, I grew up in the faith. I knew all the Bible stories. I, I memorized the verses. I knew what I should believe, but I didn't really know why it was true. And that's sort of a dangerous formula. Because then I went to college, I went to a secular university, Uh, I got in that first philosophy class. Uh, You've seen that on TV or in a movie, I'm sure. Uh, The God's Not Dead movie had the guy in the philosophy class. Mine wasn't quite as crazy as that one, but I had a professor who, though he was sort of religious, he didn't believe what we believe. And he said that our view of what he called the traditional view of God was kind of outmoded and outdated. Philosophy had moved on, and so should theology, he said. And uh, he would hold up a Bible and say, you know, this book is full of a lot of good ideas, and, and yeah, God could speak to you through it, but it's also full of a lot of mistakes and myths and problems. And I was glad to see on the list of questions you're going to be addressing, that's going to be one of the weeks, is is the Bible full of myths and mistakes? But he was very confident it is. And, you know, again, I, I, I knew I didn't agree with him. I, I was pretty sure we have good answers. I just knew I didn't know them. And, you know, I really wanted to challenge him, but, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? Stand up and say, oh, yeah, well, Ma and Pa say you're wrong, you know? It's like, wow, that's impressive. Or, you know, I, I could say, well, you know, you can say what you want, but the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. You know, I was like, maybe I need to do some homework. And 
I actually went to my church and to one of the adult Sunday school teachers and uh, said, man, I need some reinforcements. And I, I just got to be honest, he didn't have good answers for me. I, I felt more doubt after talking to my teacher than I uh, did before I talked to him. I had to do extra homework. I had to really research it. I had to find some better teachers and mentors. I had to find some good books and read them. And all of that helped. And it helped me reach a point where I not only felt like I had good answers for the professor, I actually went to the uh, campus InterVarsity group and we did a couple large group meetings for the whole campus and advertised that I was going to answer this professor's questions. And I actually went to the professor's office and invited him and he came. Uh, and he didn't like it, but, uh, <laughs> but it went well. And it helped me to see that there are good answers to the questions that uh, a lot of us wrestle with. But a question you may have, maybe you're in the middle of that right now, or maybe you have some questions that came up, maybe a, a non-Christian friend or a book you saw, or maybe an article or something on the internet. And, you know, you've kind of pushed it down, you didn't know quite how to answer it, you know, uh, some objection someone raised, and that kind of festers, and then you kind of wonder, you know, how does God feel when I doubt him? I mean, isn't this supposed to, aren't we just supposed to have faith? And so I want to just quickly show you three places where Jesus encountered doubt, and, you know, see how he dealt with people who had doubts, and draw some lessons from those briefly, and then we're going to turn to your questions in just a few minutes. So the first uh, example I want to give you is from Mark chapter 9. Um, a guy, and we're going to put a verse up, yeah. Um, this guy's son was afflicted and needed healing and needed deliverance. And he came to Jesus and he said, you know, if you can, would you heal my son? And Jesus said, if I can, well, you know, all things are possible if, you, if you'll just believe. And then I love this guy's honest response. He says, I do believe, dot, dot, dot. Would you help my unbelief? And isn't that how a lot of us feel? It's like, I mostly believe or I partially believe, but if I'm really honest, I don't fully believe or I don't, I have some doubts, I have some questions. And this guy just put it out there with Jesus and he probably wondered, is Jesus gonna say, you lightweight, you wimp, you know, if you just had faith, well, Jesus didn't do that. In fact, Jesus almost ignored the second half of that. He kind of locked into the first half and said, that's good enough. And he answered the guy's request. He healed the guy's son. And if I could draw a lesson from that, it would be this. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, when we're dealing with questions or doubts, we need to be honest first with ourselves Say, this is really important. I, I need to deal with this. I need to figure out how to get answers to this. So be honest with yourself. Then secondly, be honest with someone who can really help. Not just with anyone. You know, some people you tell me have doubts, they're going to try to reinforce them. Um, go to people who can help. This guy went to Jesus. That's a pretty good place to go. Um, and then thirdly, as I, I say there, you know, be honest with God. Uh, in prayer, in fact, if you're a skeptic, I would urge you to pray the skeptic's prayer. To say, if there's a God out there, I'd like to know. And I think if you pray that honestly, God will meet you in the middle. So we need to be honest about it. Second example is John the Baptist. Now this one's kind of a surprise. 
You know, this is John the Baptist, the, you know, cousin to Jesus, the guy who, you know, is baptizing people in the Jordan River and then sees Jesus and says, there's the, you know, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God. He baptizes him and then he hears the Father's voice say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus as a dove. You'd think, if anyone wouldn't have doubts... It's John the Baptist, right? Well, that was true at that time, but then John the Baptist hit some tough times, and uh, he got in trouble with King Herod. He got thrown into uh, jail, and he's in there, and he's alone. He's isolated. He's not out there seeing Jesus do miracles and raise the dead and you know, give blind sight and all of that. Um, he's just isolated, and he's getting depressed, and he's down. And he starts wondering, you know, did I kind of jump the gun here? Am I sure? How sure am I? So then he sends some of his, you know, associates to Jesus. And he says, ask him, are you really the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Or should we be looking for someone else? Could you make it clear? Having some doubts here. And it's interesting, again, if, if, if there's ever a point Jesus could have gotten frustrated with a doubter, it was right here. It's like, come on, John, what are you thinking? But that's not what he said. That's not how he reacted. Uh, these associates, these followers of John raised that question, and Jesus said, okay, just go back and tell him that the, you know, the blind are, you know, see through my ministry and the, the dead are raised and sick people are being healed. People are hearing the good news of the kingdom. Go and report. Give them the evidence of what I'm doing and that ought to encourage them. So Jesus met him where he was at. He, he gave him the answers. He met his doubts with evidence and information. And what's really cool about it is after they, as they're leaving, he said, by the way, there's never been a greater human being born on this planet than John the Baptist. Jesus compliments him in spite of his doubts. So what lesson can we draw from that? Uh, John the Baptist was alone, isolated, probably depressed, very sad, you know, he, he, he was in a very gloomy situation. He you know, felt like it was the end of his life because it was. He was ultimately executed there. And yet he didn't let life's circumstances get in the way of him getting the truth and seeking God. And I think we can draw a lesson from that. You may be going through a really hard time or feel alone or feel depressed, and yet there are answers for you if you will reach out the way John did. And then the third example is the most famous doubter in the Bible. You, you know his name, right? Doubting Thomas. One of the 12 disciples, a guy who you'd think would have known that after the crucifixion, the third day, Jesus would rise from the dead because he told them that over and over. And yet they just didn't believe and they all had doubts. And then that great Easter morning, Jesus rises from the dead and then he shows up in the room where the disciples are meeting, and unfortunately, Thomas had a dentist appointment or something that day. He wasn't there, and so he didn't see it. And so Thomas, he comes back, and all the disciples are saying, we saw Jesus, and he didn't trust what they said. 
He had doubts, and he gave this famous response. He said, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in, their, in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. I need evidence, he said. And then he waited, and he waited. And on, it says, on the eighth day after that, Jesus appeared again to the disciples. Jesus met Thomas. He, he, Jesus knew what he had said. He said, here I am. Here's the scars. You, know, you want to put your hand here? What do you need? Thomas saw it and believed. And you can read in John 20, 28 that he falls before him and says, my Lord and my God. He worships the risen Jesus, understanding now that not only is he resurrected, he is the son of God that he claimed to be. Well, the lesson I think we can draw from this one is that you know when you have doubts, you need to stick around the places. You need to dwell in the places where you're likely to get answers. Don't do what some people do. They, they feel doubts. They go, well, I'm not going to go to church because everyone there believes and I'm, I'm questioning it. And, and I think that's what the enemy wants us to do is to isolate ourselves. But thankfully, Thomas didn't do that. He stayed in church. He stayed you know, during this uh, period where he had all these doubts and it was eight days later hanging around with the disciples, you know, probably feeling pretty embarrassed and isolated that then he finally gets the information he needs. And I would just say for all, all of us, keep seeking, keep looking, keep going to those places where you can get the information. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, I think we have a slide uh, yeah, uh, he said, you know, if you have doubts, if you have questions, ask and it'll be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. So Jesus gave us that promise. And there's also one more verse, uh, Jeremiah 29 says, but you gotta seek with all your heart. Make this serious. Really go for the information and God will meet you with the information or the help that you need to overcome your doubts. I wanna just give a, a few practical thoughts before we go now to the Q&A um, on how you can dwell in places you know, where you get that information. And uh, four quick thoughts on this. The first one is stick with it through the series. Or if you have friends who have doubts, help them come and go through this five-week series here at the church. Because, you know, we're, we're addressing these kinds of issues head on. And so, you know, make it a priority to be here, to hear these messages. And I think that can go a long way for a lot of people if you do uh, wrestle with some of these questions. Secondly, uh, there's some things here at the church called spiritual discovery groups. And that's for anyone who says, I, I'm not convinced yet. I'm a skeptic. I, I don't believe. I'm a doubter. Well, these groups are especially for you. And you'll be with other like-minded disbelievers or doubters. In fact, I know one church that had groups like this. They call them Agnostics Anonymous. I thought that was a pretty good term. But if, if you're agnostic, you're an atheist, you're a skeptic, or maybe you're just saying, I'm not sure I, I'm any of that, but I'm just not fully convinced. Well, these are groups you can sign up for. In fact, in your bulletin, there's some more information on that. And on the third thing I want to mention, if you're a believer and you want to just study these issues more deeply and get in a group to talk through them and you know, really reinforce some of this information, 
Um, Fred Meadows has a, a class that he teaches called Faith Matters. And then the last thing I want to mention on the practical front of how to get answers is printed resources. I mentioned when I was in college, reading books you know, really helped me uh, get the information I needed. And since then, I've written a couple that I just want to mention to you because we have them available today, and I think it may be helpful to you. Um, and there they are, and I know it's football season, so let's talk offense and defense here for a minute. <clears throat> uh, the book on the left, uh, the one that says offense, is a book in which uh, these red arrows represent 20 arguments for the Christian faith. And that's a lot of what's in this book is arguments from science, from history, from uh, philosophy and logic, from archaeology, from uh, things related to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and the early church and miracles and uh, all kinds of evidence that I put together in kind of a cumulative case for the Christian faith. So that's the the uh, offense, and then the other book, the defense, is the one that uh, the pastor uh, mentioned, and that is the book, uh, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask, with answers, by the way. We did decide to put some answers in there, but this is based on a national survey we did where we got the top 10 questions that we are afraid of as Christians, and I wrote chapters on each of those. And it helps you defend your faith when people ask you hard questions. So uh, Sheila is out at the table out there afterwards, and I'll be out there afterwards. But they're having a sale on these books to make them really affordable. And I would just urge you to uh, consider those as resources for yourself, but especially for people in your life who have these questions, and especially young people whose faith is so under attack these days. So you can check those out. And now Pastor Chris is going to come up. Uh, I understand you've been uh, writing in or sending in some pretty hard questions, and so we're going to dive into those next. All right. Well, while we're getting set up, uh, removing the podium and everything, let me just uh, mention a couple things real quickly. You can still uh, email a question in, even as you're sitting in the audience uh, this morning or as you're watching online. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online, and the email address is still the same. It's uh, my question singular, my question at mpccministry.com. And then also, we're going to put some information up on the screen. We have a couple of questions that uh, we're going to have a, as poll questions. And so, if you follow that information there, um, then you can weigh in on which of the questions you think should be asked, and that will be uh, the last question that we deal with today. So, take a minute and look at that. We're going to dive right in. Uh, we got a lot of great questions, and uh, pretty much they all ran the gamut of the different things that I expected. But the first one we're going to talk about is this. Uh, outside of the Bible, what are the historical evidences for Jesus, and what are the evidences that He was God? Good question. Can I start by just complimenting your socks? Those oh, are, thank you. Yeah. Those are <laughs> awesome. You want to, I think people were going to clap for your socks. Over oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't have to do that. Um, it's a very good question because a lot of people say, you know, it's all just written in a religious book. And if, if you're just saying to, you know, take it by faith and just believe what's in this religious book, well then, why don't I believe any other religious book? You know, what about the Quran? What about the Book of Mormon? What about the Hindu scriptures or whatever? You know, everyone's got their religious books. But this is where the Bible really shines because it has its own testimony, and I'll actually want to come back to that, 
but it also is confirmed over and over by outside confirmation. For instance, um, there is a lot of secular history that confirms a lot of the details in the Bible. Um, in fact, I want to quote from one of Lee Strobel's books where he interviews a mutual friend of Lee's and mine, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, who's a scholar. He's considered one of the top experts on the resurrection of Christ, but he's also a historian. Uh, and Lee says, in his book, The Historical Jesus, Dr. Gary Habermas discusses 39 ancient sources for the life of Jesus outside the Bible, including 17 non-Christian sources, which uh, together report 110 facts related to Christ's death, teachings, miracles, crucifixion, and resurrection. So 39 ancient sources, including almost half of those that are from non-Christian sources, that over and over confirm things that are in, you know, recorded in the Bible. I'd also just remind you that we have unbelievable wealth of archaeological evidence that backs up thousands of the claims in the Bible. Now, I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, years ago, a lot of the critics of the Bible, uh, they would say, well, you know, the Bible talks about this group of people in the Old Testament called the Hittites. And, you know, you can't read too much of the Old Testament without running into the Hittites. And they said, guess what? We have no evidence for the Hittites. So we don't believe they even existed. We think this is Old Testament fiction. There are no Hittites. And then, oops, archaeologists dig up the Hittites. And now there is overwhelming evidence. You know, there's no doubt anymore because they've, they've dug up cities and a you know, whole civilization of evidence for the Hittites. And you go, okay, oops, like, the Bible got lucky that time. But what about this? And they keep going on to what about this? What about, and then they keep saying, oops. And because, oh, okay, the Bible got lucky again. Um, well, in the New Testament, there was, was a similar example where they said Pilate, this guy who supposedly tried Jesus, he never existed. We have no evidence for Pilate. We don't believe Pilate. This is New Testament fiction. And then, oops, they dig up the Pilate stone, which talks, gives his name and talks about you know, his, his rank and government and so on. And it's buried right where Pilate, according to the Bible, served. They go, okay, oops, okay, the Bible got lucky again. And my uh, conclusion to this is stop betting against the Bible. And the Bible proves itself over it. There are thousands and thousands of these examples from archaeology, from history, and it keeps getting stronger because we keep digging up more stuff. And so I just think there are all kinds of great reasons to trust the Bible. The last thing I want to say on this is, you know, when people, and they'll often say this, they'll say, you know, besides what the Bible claims, give me good evidence. And I got to tell you, that's a little like saying we're going to have a, a murder trial and we're going to you know, have all these witnesses come and then one of the lawyers says, I want evidence besides the eyewitnesses. You know, leave, leave all the eyewitnesses out. What evidence do you have? And my, my question would be, why leave out the people who saw what happened? Well, that, these are the guys that saw what happened. So why leave them out? This is our best source of information. Uh, for instance, with Jesus, 
These are the guys that walked and talked with Jesus for three years and wrote down what he said. That's our best source, but thankfully it's also confirmed by all these other sources that I already mentioned. What did you say the name of the book was of the mutual friend that you and Lee have that you mentioned? Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, and it's his book, The Historical Jesus. The Historical Jesus. That's a critical thing because a lot of uh, atheists will say there is no historical evidence for Jesus outside the Bible, which is just not true. Yeah, it's ridiculous, actually. And, uh, and if you want a good summary of a lot of that kind of evidence, I would go to Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Um, and by the way, if you haven't seen The Case for Christ movie, it's on Netflix now. Great movie. And uh, there's lots of evidence, especially in the book, The Case for Christ. All right, let's move on to the next question. The next question is, if God knows that Satan is evil, why would he give him any control and power in the world? Okay. Uh, it's, it's a challenging question because uh, Scripture and, and what God has revealed, he doesn't always explain everything to us. Like, here's why I created Satan, and here's why he's here. So some of this you have to kind of read between the lines and say, well, what's God up to here? A um, few things I think we should say about this. First of all, God did not create an evil being. Like, you know, I want a, I want a Darth Vader in the universe here, and here, let's, let's make this guy. Uh, Satan, and this is very clear in Scripture, um, everything God creates is good. Uh, he does not create evil, he does not promote evil, he does not ever tempt people to do evil, but he did create a beautiful being named Lucifer, who was one of the chief angels, and he gave the angels, just as he gave us as humans, gave them freedom, and said, follow me, serve me, and, and they had the ability to do that, and they did that for a long time, but if, again, if you read, there's some passages that they're not super clear but what the Bible indicates is that Lucifer, along with some of the other angels, rebelled against God and said, we're not going to serve you. We're not going to, we want to be like you. And this led to a rebellion that led to them being, you know, kicked out. And Lucifer became known as Satan and is like the chief evil fallen angel. And uh, so, now, why did God allow that? Well, I think... Uh, for maybe a, a variety of reasons. One is I think God loves to create beings who are able to love and serve him, but don't have to. You know, if you have to love and serve, you're not really loving and serving. You know, a robot doesn't really love. And so I think God wanted to create free beings, including the angels, including human beings, who could truly love and serve him, but he never forces us to. Well, that leaves a, a margin of error there for us to go the other way. That's where evil comes from, is when we go the other way or when the, the angels go the other way. The last thing I'll say on this is I think God allows that partly because he wants people who are willing to go against the stream and say, in spite of all the temptations, in spite of my past, and, you know, in spite of uh, the devil whispering in my ear to do my own thing, uh, God wanted people who would say, no, I'm going to turn and, and <clears throat> receive God's salvation and follow him and serve him willingly out of love and, and a desire to know him. I think that's ultimately what God wanted, and thankfully that's what he has uh, in the church and uh, that's what we're promoting is saying we can all do that. We can all turn back to God 
and know and love and serve him. And I think that's how God is most pleased and most glorified is when he knows we're willing to serve him against the odds. And, and we talked about last night the fact that, that the power that Satan does has is a limited power and it's only for a season. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to understand that this is not like a yin-yang Eastern concept where there's like good and evil, you know, the two fish that are kind of eating each other's tails. And, uh, that's kind of a concept of there's a, this even balance of good and evil. And that, that really is the Star Wars uh, concept. Uh, that's really more of an Eastern, um, you know, George Lucas was very influenced by Buddhism. And don't worry, I'm not telling you you can't watch Star Wars movies. I'm just saying. No emails. <laughs> yeah, if you're concerned about this, just email uh, your pastor. All I'm saying is be open-eyed when you watch movies like this because there is a philosophy there, and that is more of this uh, balance of good and evil in the universe, the good and bad side of the force, that kind of an idea. That is not the biblical concept. The biblical concept is that God is the almighty God, the sovereign of the universe, and he created this being who is this rebel named Satan, and he's allowing him a measure of freedom. But the way I describe it, it's not, it's not the balance of yin and yang. What it is is God the creator is like this, and Satan has the measure of power between the bottom of God's foot and the floor. And ultimately, God is going to judge and crush Satan. The Bible talks about him being made a footstool and all of God's enemies, you know, like a footstool under God's feet. God is the ultimate judge and he's the ultimate power. He's the almighty and there's only one. Okay, uh, I want to, real quickly, <clears throat> I've got my phone out. There's this game called Alien Shooter that I'm just obsessed with and I, no, <laughs> this is how I'm getting information about questions that are being sent in. So I didn't want you to think I was being rude. Here, I'm gonna kind of throw a, a a, a wrench in the mix, and here's a question that just came in that we're going to throw in, uh, and it'll be brand new to you. In the Bible, there were times that God commanded war and death. Why do we see this in the Bible if God is all loving? And that's a common argument, especially in some Old Testament passages that can be difficult for people to understand. Yeah, it's a hard question, and uh, there's whole books. I have a friend who I went to uh, grad school uh, named Paul Copan. He wrote a whole book on just this question uh, called, Is God a Moral Monster? Because of some of the commands that this question refers to in the Old Testament. I think part of what's important to understand is that God is all loving, but he is not only loving. In other words, that's not his only attribute. So God is loving, but he is also holy, and he is also just. And, you know, the Bible often refers to God as the judge of the world, and it says there will ultimately be a judgment day. And it makes clear there are points along the way where God brings judgment on individuals or sometimes families or, or sometimes whole civilizations when they shake their fist at God enough, and he, he says this is uh, enough is enough. Or sometimes it's to protect his people, the Israelites, who, through whom he was going to bring the Messiah. And we have that situation in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is what he did through the Israelites in a very clear way where it wasn't just them being angry at neighbors. It was the God of heaven who led them out of the desert you know, with 
pillars of smoke and fire and, I mean, all kinds of miraculous stuff. So it was very clear this was God speaking. He said in certain situations when people were going to resist his people and not let them through or not let them live there, he, he said, then you're going to have to defeat and destroy this, these people. And as we study who those people were, in many cases they were just vile, anti-God civilizations, uh, civilizations that did child sacrifices and just incredibly evil stuff. And there were points where it was almost like a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment day where God said, I'm going to bring judgment through my people. So uh, I emphasize, though, that this was very clear, uh, that this was God leading it. It was God's judgment. It wasn't the anger of men against other people. It was God bringing judgment. Uh, because it's easy for people to say, well, I don't like this group or I don't like that group. Well, that's, that's a different thing. Uh, the, the general rule of what God says is thou shalt not kill, and even there, it's thou shalt not murder, um, and that's the general rule, but there are places where God has brought judgment along the way. Yeah, and he's still a God of mercy, and a great example is the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. Uh, yeah, God always has mercy. He always gives people second chances, um, and the Jonah story is a great one because God wanted Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, which was one of those incredibly evil cultures. And it was so evil that Jonah, who you know, was a follower of God, just he's like, I don't want to talk to those guys. They're creeps. I mean, they, and, and he avoided, you know, he, he gets on the ship to avoid God's will. And God cared so much about the Ninevites, he gave uh, Jonah a special ship in the, you know, in the belly of a big fish and brings him back to the shores of Nineveh and spits him out and says, now go do what I told you to do. That's how much God loved the Ninevites. And I think people often miss this, that before he burned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he gave them lots of chances. And I think God is slow to anger, and that's, that's in the Bible. He is slow to anger, but I also got to say, he'll get there. Yeah. If we push him hard enough, he'll get there. And so he's a, he's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. Uh, if people were born into another religion and never exposed to Christianity, how can they not go to heaven? Yeah, I think the seeds of this question um, are kind of this idea that's popular in our culture, which says that if you're sincere about something, then that'll get you there. What really matters is that you're authentic, that you're real, that you're sincere in your beliefs. And so if you're a sincere Muslim or a sincere Buddhist or Hindu or, or whatever, that would be just like being a sincere Christian, and surely God will honor that. Well, here's the problem with that. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. You know, you, we've all heard about these sincere connoisseurs of mushrooms who go out and pick mushrooms to, to put in their salad, and they sincerely think this is the safe variety, and they put poison mushrooms in their salad. Well, their sincerity doesn't save them from the effects of the poison. And if, if you're believing in a religion that is wrong or you know, misguided or poisonous, your sincerity doesn't save you from that. Um, and the, the thing I'd want to point out is that there's only one faith system where God comes as man and pays the penalty for our sins. You know, it's clear as you look around the world, you watch the, the news, 
we are sinners who need a savior. And, you know, the Buddha came. He said, I'm not a savior. A lot of people don't know, but the Buddha was an atheist. He didn't even believe in God. Uh, now, a lot of Buddhists do believe in God, but if they followed what the Buddha taught, they probably wouldn't believe in God. Uh, he wasn't a savior. Um, Muhammad came and said, I'm not the savior. I'm just representing God. But then he taught all kinds of things that contradicted what God had already said. Uh, and he certainly didn't die for our sins. as He needed someone to die for his sins. Muhammad was a sinner. It's very clear if you read the record. And I could go through all kinds of examples of different religious leaders and their failings and their problems, and, and it becomes very clear. They, like us, were all sinners who needed a savior. And then you come to Jesus, and all of a sudden you discover someone who was not a sinner, someone who lived a perfect life. You know, after three years of being followed around by his critics, he's at his judge, you know, at, at, you know he's being put on trial right before the crucifixion. And here they are trying to find something to convict him of, and they're speechless. They got nothing. In fact, Jesus kind of flaunts them, you know, he, or kind of taunts them. He says, you know, who of you can convict me of sin? And they got nothing. They pay false witnesses to make up stuff about it. See, because Jesus lived a sinless life. And then and he did, he said the very reason he came was to give his life as a ransom as a payment for us. That's why God sent his only, you know, you know from John 3:16, God sent his only begotten son so that he could die for us on the cross. He's the savior that paid the sin penalty we owed. And there's nothing like that in any other religion. There's only one savior. So, that's what everyone needs to know and that's why right before Jesus left, he gave all of us the command. He said, "Go into all the world and, and tell them the good news. Preach the message." You know, teach them to follow me and baptize them and, and disciple them um, because they, the whole world needs the Savior. And last thing I'll say on that is people go, well, yeah, but is it fair for God to judge them if they never even heard the message? Well, they hear different degrees of the message enough to make them responsible. Uh, Romans 1 says even just by looking at nature, people can know enough to know there is a good and powerful God just by what he has made. And then I already had the verse up on the screen. Jesus said, if they will seek me, they'll find me. And guess what? People around the world, you know, we always say, yeah, but people around the world, they're all, all these, you know, pagan tribes and all, they, they don't know anything. Well, guess what? The majority of the Christians in the world are now in what we used to call third world countries. They're, they're outdoing us, Okay. Um, the gospel's going all over the world, and there are great stories. I met a guy named Mahindra who grew up in India being raised by gurus in the Hindu religion, but he didn't, their answers didn't make sense, and he kept asking question after question. He was seeking truth the way Jesus said to, uh, do the way Jesus said that we should, and finally his gurus just gave up. They go, we can't help this kid, you know, because we don't have answers for him. And they gave up on him, and then he met a missionary, and he, he got a hold of the scriptures, and then he found the truth. And one more example of this, you know, uh, one of the most hard 
groups of people to reach are where there's radical Islam, where there's like death penalties for us to try to be missionaries. It's very hard for us to go into those places. Well, guess what? God is going directly. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but there are incredible things happening in Muslim lands where people are having supernatural experiences, dreams and visions of Jesus that are so real to them, they are willing to risk their lives to follow Christ. And there's been missiology studies. Get this, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ since the year 2000 than in the entire 1,400-year history of Islam before that. And if you want to read an account of this, read uh, Lee Strobel's newest book. is called The Case for Miracles, and it talks about a lot of the evidence for what I just said. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that uh, Romans, the witness of creation and the witness of a conscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he can speak directly to our hearts. Makes us without excuse. Yeah. Uh, and here's the question that I, I knew uh, that would come, and it came in multiple different forms, and it's maybe the absolute most difficult to answer. Um, how could a good God allow so much suffering? Boy, that is the hardest question, and especially, you know, even the, the uh, pictures you showed of a couple who are trying to fix their motorcycle, and they both lose Change their a leg. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Every week we have one of those. It's like, why does God allow these things? And I, I, I think one of the important things to say first is that, you know, I'm going to give some thoughts and some answers, but if you're right in the middle of suffering and you've just had a, a great loss or um, bad news about health or something, a lot of times what you need is not a theological answer. Uh, you need ministry. You need, you know, a small group. You need a friend. You need someone to hold your hand. You need a place to cry or you need, um, you may need a counselor. Um, so I just want to urge you, that's why I love doing these kinds of conversations in the middle of a local church where there's all these resources and people here to love you and walk with you through that um, to help minister in real ways as you suffer or, or face hard times. Um, but I do have some things to say about it as well, and, uh, and it's hard to know where to start because we could spend the next hour just on this question. Um, one thing that helps me when I look at this whole question of pain and suffering is to say, you know what, it, it fits with what the Bible told us about the world we live in. It's not like, you know, we, we have this rosy picture of the world where everything's good and, you know, we all have a spark of divinity in us and we're all good people and, uh, and then we're shocked when something bad happens. It's actually quite the opposite. The Bible talks about how our hearts are deceitfully wicked and reports honestly about the evil things people do, that we live in a fallen world where things are not the way they're supposed to be and that all kinds of, you know, we do horrible things to each other and there's also natural evil that is a result of being in a fallen world. And all of that is predicted in the Bible. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you're gonna have trouble or trials, or, or tribulation. Um, it's not like if, it's when. You know, it's going to happen. Um, so he, Jesus told us the truth, unlike uh, Mary Baker Eddy that started um, Christian Science, who said, no, no, that's all illusory, and uh, sickness is not real. Well, no, Jesus said, it's real, and let's, let's get real about this. 
Um, thankfully, Jesus didn't stop there, though. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so his message was, this is, you live in a place that's not fair, things are not right, but I can walk with you through it. You know, come to me in your times of need. And, you know, because Jesus, you know, could look at himself and say, I've suffered like no one else has. And, and I get it. And I can be merciful and empathize with what you're going through. But I can give you strength and I can help you walk through this. That's the hope of Christianity. And, uh, you know, I, I just, before, some people say, well, I'm going through such a hard time. I, I can't believe in a God who would allow this. So I don't believe in God anymore. I'm going, does that help? Think about this. You jump to atheism as the alternative. In atheism, there is no meaning or purpose to life. And I'm quoting atheists when I say this. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, says, you know, we live in a universe where it's just blind, pitiless indifference. There's no purpose. He says there is no right or wrong. You know, atheism can't really give you any reason for, for ethics, for, for right or wrong, uh, because it's just preferences. There's no God that spoke. There's no ultimate moral law. It's just do what you can get away with, basically, or, or try to be nice, but you don't have to. There's no reason you have to. And so I'm going, you think that's better? You're struggling with someone passing away, and so you jump to a philosophy that says survival of the fittest, baby. You know, they weren't fit. No, I'd rather stick with a God who says, I understand your pain and suffering, and even though I can't say something that'll make you feel totally better about it, I'll walk with you through it. Yeah, and I love the truth that uh, God also promises to redeem those things one day, and you just, that's a promise that can be hard to hang on to, but it's a promise that's not found anywhere else. Yeah, it, um, you're referring to things like what Romans 8, 28 says, mm -hmm. God causes all things to work together for good, but it's a conditional promise. And I think we have to be careful not to make people think every suffering is gonna turn into something good. Uh, it's a promise to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Um, and it, even then, it doesn't say you'll necessarily see how God's bringing good out of it now or even in this life. But there is a truth that God can, you know, take the horrible things that happened to Joseph in the Old Testament. And Joseph later said, what you, my brothers, intended for evil, God intended for good, and God used it for good. So there is that promise that we can say, even in the middle of hard things, uh, God can bring good out of them if we're following and serving him. And if we don't follow and serve him, there's no promise like that. Uh, we're going to talk about one more question before we dismiss. And one of the things that's been very revealing to me through this whole process uh, based on the way the questions are worded, is that I think oftentimes that we have failed as the church, I'm not just talking about Mount Pleasant, but just church as a whole, <clears throat> to always, you know, represent God the way that He should be represented. Because a lot of the questions are coming framed in, in, in uh, a way that I think um, are based on what people have experienced in church rather than maybe what they've experienced with God. Yeah. And so... <clears throat> Um, I've got to the top uh, questions from the poll, and uh, I'm just going to pick this one right here. Um, 
And the, this is the way the question came. Why is God set against homosexuality? You know, God, a lot of people view God's commands as trying to limit our fun. You know, why does he give us these 10 rules, 10 commandments that, man, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't. Well, God's trying to protect you. And rather than saying, God's, you know, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, for example. God's trying to limit my sexual freedom. Well, he's also trying to protect your wife or your spouse. He's trying to protect your daughter. He's trying to, God's saying, I don't want anyone messing with your spouse. Or it's like, thou shalt not kill. Not only does he, he want to limit you from doing that, he doesn't want anyone killing you or killing your spouse or your family, uh, and not lying, you know, not bearing false witness. He doesn't want someone ripping you off or stealing your stuff or lying to you. So these are, these are things that are there for our protection. And I know, you know what I'm about to say is you know, very politically incorrect in our culture today, but God says in the area of sexuality, I know what's best for you. I'm like the guy that wrote the user's manual for human beings. And it's encoded into the DNA of who you are and who, who I've made you to be. And I, as your creator, will tell you there are two genders. I created you male and female. This is Genesis uh, chapter two. And he said, and I created you to be in union, a man and a woman, leave their parents and join and become one flesh for life. That's the biblical sexual ethic, that's the biblical view of marriage. And now some people will say, but Jesus never said that. Well, yeah, he did. Um, in Matthew 19, he said, as it was from the beginning, this is the way it works. And he reinforces again that God made us male and female, and he created marriage to be a man and a woman together for life. And so that's the positive biblical sexual eth ethic. And the Bible and Jesus never divert from that or never give exceptions to that. Um, I think God knows what's best. And I think he has the right to tell us that. And I think we are wise to follow what he says about this. Now, some people say, but, but I was born with these desires. And so and the, the, the current view of this is if you're born that way, then that's what you're made to do. I mean, I mean could Lady Gaga be wrong? Um, that was a song she, she wrote called Born This Way. Um, and my answer is, yeah, I think she could be real wrong. Um, because guess what? People are born all kinds of ways. You know, some people are born hating people of other races. And they just grow up naturally not liking people of other races. So does that make racism okay if they're kind of born that way? No, we say you, you gotta learn and grow and stop thinking that way, even if you have thought that way as early as you can remember. Uh, my dad was raised by an alcoholic. My dad was born with a propensity toward alcoholism. So that, that's a good reason to be a drunk, right? No. We say, you may be born that way, but you have to fight against. You know, we live in a fallen world where we're born with things that are not God's will. And we're all born with things that, we, that seem natural to us that are wrong according to God. So we all have to fight those things. And the Bible would indicate that if you're born 
with a same-sex desire, that may not be your, you know, something you chose. It, it's not your fault. But it, it, God says, trust me on this. That's not something you should fulfill. That's not a way I want you to live. And last thing I'll mention on this is that you look at the studies. You look at, um, you know, studies of depression and suicide rates, especially in transgender communities and so on, where people are saying, I'm, I, I know better what gender I am than what my physiology would tell me. There is higher suicide rates. There are higher depression rates. I, I think we're seeing evidence from a sociological uh, study uh, standpoint that show that you divert away from God's prescription at your own peril. And I think God loves us enough to tell us the truth and to say, I know this may seem hard to go my way, but I will help you with it. What God expects, he enables. And we need to turn to him for help, whether it's fighting alcoholism or same-sex attraction. One of the things that, um, um, another thing that I feel like I, that I have learned in this whole process with the questions is that... Um, you know, there's, there's, in a sinful fallen world, there's no avoiding living in tension because of these kinds of questions and because like a question like this, it runs so deep and it becomes so emotional. And where I think the church has failed in the past is that we've refused to live in the tension. We've just drawn lines and you're either on one side or the other and we've uh, minimized people's feelings and concerns and, uh, and, and at times maybe shame them. But I, I really believe with all my heart that moving forward that we just need to embrace living in the tension of yeah. living in a sinful, fallen world, and we need to love people. We need to speak the truth in love. But we, especially on that issue, we need to we do need a to lot embrace, better. We need to embrace the tension. Yeah, and I did write a chapter on that, the question of homosexuality in the book, uh, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And I, frankly, I was hoping you wouldn't ask. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, there, there's a chapter in, in the book on that, and I talk about, I use Jesus as the example in John 4 with the Samaritan woman who was uh, not same-sex attracted, but she certainly liked the opposite sex. And he, 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 he deals with a woman who's had five husbands and is now living with a guy who's not her husband. And he gently, lovingly, first of all, respects her and talks to her and answers her questions. And it's way into the conversation where he even indicates that he knows about her moral failings. And even there, he's very loving and gentle with how he deals with that. And so I use that as a model to say, we need to be like Jesus because what's happening in society today is either you've got the people that are just anti, you know, everything, and they're condemning everyone, and they're pointing their fingers, and they're judgmental. Jesus wasn't like that, but he also didn't wink at sin and say, well, okay, it's okay, you know, love is love, and everyone. No, he, he, Jesus was, um, he, he was still stood for truth, and, and would point to what is sin, and, and say, like to the woman caught in adultery, he said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So there's this Jesus balance that a lot of us need to work on, and all of us probably need to work on it in various areas of our lives. And I try to use that as an example of how we need to deal with people who struggle with same-sex attraction. We don't shut the door on people that we love. 
That's right. Even when it's rough. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's give Mark a real warm thank you for sharing thank with you. us Appreciate today. It. And <clears throat> thank you so much. Thanks.